Hello, everybody. Thank you very much for inviting me. And um, so this is a sort of, I'll summarise some of the work we've done, but look particularly at, you know, whether these tools can be used and how they can be implemented and some of the validation work we've done. So the, the sort of more applied end of the, of the picture. And, and these, these tools, I mean, just that so you know, I mean, I was involved in developing them with Tom Fanshaw as well, and, and Maria, who's here as well, has been working on them with us as well. Um, so it's a collaborative effort between psychiatry and, and uh, primary care sciences. So I'll start off by telling you a little bit about the tools, then I'll tell you a little bit about some of the challenges we've had with validating them and implementing them. And that's basically it, and then there's some, some reflections on all of that but I'll sort of introduce them a little bit. So some of that might be overlapping with what you've heard, but I just thought it would be useful to introduce them. There, there are a series of tools that we've tried to develop for adverse outcomes in mental health and criminal justice, and a lot of, a lot of them overlap. The mental health and criminal justice adverse outcomes overlap, and you'll see why, what I mean by that. And by adverse, adverse outcomes are usually um, meaning things like perpetration of violence, or in some of the tools we're looking at suicide risk, so it's a completed suicide. So these are longer term, very, very serious, obviously, adverse outcomes. And one of the things we've been trying to do with these tools is develop them using the best methods, so large data sets. And where we've gone to for the data is Sweden. And we've gone to Sweden because Sweden has linked data sets across various different domains, including health, justice, mortality, um, but also socio-demographic information, family information. And it's probably the largest national database that does this. There's only a few countries that are able to link across all these different databases. And Sweden has about a population of about 10 million. Denmark does it, but it has about half the population. Finland also. And there's one or two um, Australian states that it's possible to do it. But again, it doesn't reach the size. Um, and I actually think in Sweden, they're, they're, they're very high quality, so you, they're, they're very accurately linked because they use a 10-digit personal identification number, which is unique to every resident. And so you don't have these problems that you get, let's say, in the UK, where you're having to sort of guess someone's name and date of birth, and the name's written wrong, or the date of birth is written a bit wrong. You have to sort of do probability matching. You don't get that problem. So there's very little missing data, so it's very high quality. And then, I mean, in terms of their methods, you've been talking about that last couple of days, I assume, but, you know, trying to put everything down and, and pre-specify what we do and use a range of performance measures and use uh, predictors that are easy to score, don't require additional interviewing, so scalable predictors. Um, and part of the reason for doing that, of course, is that in order to pull predict predictors out of databases, you need to use things which are um, recorded firstly and routinely recorded secondly. And that means that they tend to be straightforward, relatively speaking. Um, so it's not, for instance, in psychiatry, you can ask about a symptom or you can ask, let's say, a predictor could be a diagnosis. And in large-scale databases, the symptoms are very inaccurately recorded you don't know if they're not recorded if they're present because they haven't been asked. And you don't know even when they're recorded if it's what threshold people have used. But for a diagnosis, there's a sort of agreement. There are classification of diseases. There's something called the ICD-10, now it's 11. And there's a, you know, these are consensus diagnoses that we worked out from decades. And so 
they're a little bit easier to, to score. They're a bit more reliable. Inter-rater and re-rater reliability is much better for these type of things. And then, you know, for the tools that we've developed, we try to internally validate them and then externally validate where possible. So you'll see some of that coming up. And then we've translated them into risk calculators. And the idea behind the risk calculators is a bit like Q-Risk or Framingham, that they're simple, scalable, available on the internet, um, free to use, don't require training. And you can see all the coefficients, how they're scored as well. So you can see how they work. So all that's published. So here are some of the ones we've developed. So the, I'll start off with OxMiv and OxRec. So OxMiv is a tool for people with severe mental illness. Severe mental illness in this case means uh, people who usually have been to hospital um, at some point in their life. It's a diagnosis of what they call schizophrenia spectrum disorders and bipolar disorder. So they're, they're on the, a more extreme end in terms of severity usually. And so we developed a tool to look at perpetration of violence in people um, with severe mental illness at any point in the patient pathway. And we did that partly because this is a problem. I mean, about 10% of people, if you look over a five-year period, uh, perpetrate quite serious violence. And that's a, a, it's higher than what you'd expect for people of similar age and gender um, in the general population. It's still a minority of patients, but it's enough to be an important out outcome to prevent in this patient population. And we know it's modifiable, so that's good reason to come up with some method to predict it so you can prevent it. In release prisoners, we developed a tool called OxRec, and this was the first tool we developed. And there, it's at the end of the prison sentence, and there, again, the idea was that this is a, a risky period in the first one to two years after leaving prison for repeat offending. And a lot of that repeat offending is driven by modifiable factors such as drug and alcohol problems and also in some cases um, mental health problems. So we thought a tool that could predict it and then eventually, you know, and then ideally be linked to an intervention could uh, again help uh, prevent reoffending risk and, and reoffending risk is, is much too high in, in people who leave prison. Um, so if you look around the world, recidivism rates are sort of in the range of 40 to 60% in two years. These are quite high absolute rates of reoffending. And then we have some other tools for specific populations. And at the bottom you'll see there's a tool for suicide risk assessment, which of course is a, is a very rare outcome in even people with severe mental illness, fortunately, but it's nevertheless a very important part of clinical work to evaluate the risk and then try and manage it in some way. And, and, and we've just worked, and this is a project that Maria has been involved in quite extensively, is, um, is another calculator to look at suicide risk in people who self-harmed, because again, that's an important population which the self-harming rates are very relatively high, um, and, and they represent a high-risk population for suicide in the subsequent year or so after self-harming. So if I just look at one of the tools, just so you see how they've been developed, this is OxMiv. So what we did is we took the whole country and we identified a, a, a sample of people uh, geographically, called uh, 58,000 of people with severe mental illness, and then we identified the, a, another part of the country which we were going to use to validate what we developed. 
And we, when we derived the, the tool, we, we came up with some candidate risk factors, some that we thought should be in the tool because of face validity and some that we weren't sure about, that we then tested in multivariable models. And then we, we set up a high risk or elevated risk category at 5%. So this is a one-year risk of violent offending in the population. And all that was pre-specified in the protocol that we published and then we, we try to present a range of performance measures, which I think you've heard about today, measures of discrimination but also calibration. So the risk factors, the candidate risk factors, this is probably less interesting to you, but anyway, it gives you a f sense of the approach we took. Is we, we looked at different domains, sociodemographic, clinical, criminogenic, which is just previous violent crime, and then family factors, which are probably proxies for genetic risk or... Uh, early other early risk factors, and our outcome was violent crime. And those, in order to select the predictors, we, we looked at the literature quite carefully, and we looked at those factors that we also thought were possible to extract reliably. And the outcome, as you can see, is quite a, a, a sort of rare outcome, actually, even in this population. So it's quite a high threshold to, for that particular outcome. And see, these are some of the risk factors we looked at, and here's the prevalence of them. Uh, so the, the ones in blue we thought should go in the model based on previous literature and face validity, and the ones in number two and three we were not sure about. Two we thought would probably go in the model that we wanted to test, and then three we were not sure about at all. And then when we came to test them in the models, the, the, a couple of the greens survived, <laughs> and a couple of the reds survived. That's so quite interesting. And the, in external validation, so in the, pop, in the geographical region, which was different to the development region, the TORM performed quite well. So, I mean, the omnibus measure is quite high, but 0.89 is always suspiciously high. So high. <laughs> um, and then the, here are the other um, metrics. I mean, the sensitivity is quite important from a population perspective. And I think, you know, the way we wrote it up also is we, we, we highlighted the high MPV because it could then act as a screen-out tool because a lot of services, you know, want to screen out the large number of referrals they get. And this is one this could help. Calibration is, is quite good. So the top one is in the derivation. Uh, the one below is in the uh, evaluation samples. It doesn't look like there's any systematic problem particularly. And here's the online calculator. I mean, it's online. It's got these drop-down menus. It's difficult on my screen to use, but I mean, this is not actually the online version. This is on my slide version, but you just sort of click on that and you can get, and you pull that along and you get a different age and then you, you pull down. Some of them you can score as un unknown and then it gives you a range of probability scores. And you end up with a probability score and then the pre-specified category, elevated or not, is 5%. You can see if it's above that. And then we also have some visuals, uh, so you can see whether you can visualize it in table or in um, boxes. So um, external validations, I mean, I'll come on to this a bit later, but we've, we've done uh, one, I suppose, in the Netherlands, um, which I'll talk about a bit later. Um, I just put that up now to remind me to really talk about it. And we've done, someone else did an external validation, rather bizarrely used it in a slightly different population, um, an inpatient population of people on a, in a psychiatric ward in a prison, which is, is, is not really what the tool was developed for, but I mean, why not? I mean, you can use it for anyone with severe mental illness, so they can be inpatients or outpatients. Um, so it's a very specific population with probably a higher base rate. 
and, uh, and then we did a sort of feasibility study of it in, in a couple of countries, Spain and China, actually, to see whether it just uh, the predictors could be extracted from routine data. And then we asked clinicians whether, you know, whether it would change their practice in any way, whether they thought it was usable, practical, and useful, actually. So I'll mention the prison study um, just very briefly. So we, the OxRec is the prison cohort, and there we, the numbers are a bit smaller, but still quite large. And you can see the base rate's very different. It's much higher, and so the cutoff, I think, for higher risk, we have three cutoffs here, low, medium, and high, and the cutoff, I think, is over 40%. So it's very different than the over 5%, which was elevated risk for OxMiv. And I think it just reflects a very different base rate of the outcome here. So OxRec, here are the, some of the performance measures, and that actually does quite well compared to other tools in criminal justice, and I'll show you some graphs about that. But again, you know, I suppose, I mean, I look at everything ideally. I mean, in criminal justice, you know, false negatives aren't really tolerated very well. Mm. <laughs> I suppose sensitivity is important to look at. Of course, you can you know, um, change that with a cutoff that you use, but nevertheless. Calibration, so that's also presented, and that's the one and two year plots. And actually what we decided to do is we've got a, a maximum score, which I think is about 60%, because once you get above that, it becomes a bit unstable. And we thought that it, it wasn't accurate. And interestingly enough, the tool that's used in the UK, that probation and criminal justice use, that you can go all the way up to 100%. And so um, there isn't the cutoff a certain threshold. And that's interesting because I, you know, I suspect there's a lot of uncertainty at the upper ends of risk, but they haven't factored that in. And again, you get this um, drop-down menu, and then you can see here the uh, percentage scores at the bottom, the 5 and the 8% for this particular individual. So it's quite low for this particular individual. I don't know why. Um, yes, they've got very little, what they call antecedents, so previous history. And they're sort of relatively old, actually. 30 is quite old. Not that old, but it would be not young, anyway, for a criminal justice population. So, the, I mean, how does that compare? I mean, so I did a review uh, some time ago of, of some of the tools that are used for violence. These other tools, I mean, on average, so the HR20 is, is a very well-known tool, and that on average takes about 14 hours of people time to complete. The version 2 is just a bit... So, you know, and the Oxrec takes about 10 minutes. So you can sort of weigh up the sort of... I mean, and some of these tools do a, lot, a, little, a little bit more. I mean, they identify needs and they, they go beyond just prediction. But if you were looking at it as a prediction tool, then it performs quite well to these. But these, these are the sort of more longer tools. If you look at the rest of criminal justice, we just published last year a review, and these are tools used in criminal justice that um, we could find validation studies for. Some of them are quite well known. So this thing called the LSIR is, is probably the most widely used tool in criminal justice. And you can see the range of... And they only report, fortunately, <laughs> um, um, these, uh, they don't report many performance measures. The only tool that reported calibration measures was Static99, which is a, a tool, quite an old tool, which uses age bands 
to predict risk of sexual reoffending. Well, it's it's, to, it's used in people who've committed sex offences. Uh, but, but some of the other tools are widely used, actually, in, in criminal justice. And you can see that their performance is moderate at best, based on the area under the curve. But actually, the real problem which we identified is they don't report all the other performance measures. So you can't actually, you know, you, you, you don't, you know the calibration's not there, so you just don't know. I mean, they could be fine at discriminating between different cutoffs, but completely off, systematically off when it comes to giving you a probability score. And the most widely used tool is probably this thing called the LSIR, Level of Service Inventory Revised. And you can see it's quite a, a range, and um, yeah, I think you could say it's moderate at best. And these are independent validation studies. So what we plan to do when we sort of when, when we develop Oxrec in particular is we we plan to try and validate it in some countries which we thought had linked databases, and we thought, well, okay, these are the most obvious places. And I suppose it's quite interesting. I mean, you start off with these uh, plans. And I can, I think I can say that none of them was <laughs> we managed um, for various reasons, and I can talk about the reasons if you're interested in the sort of detail of it. But uh, some of it's to do with the predictions, some of it's to do with the outcomes. We actually spoke to people who, you know, who who uh, managed these cohorts beforehand, so you know, we we had a good idea that this was possible. Well, when push comes to shove, you know, it wasn't actually possible. In Finland, we're still hoping. I mean, there we're just waiting for one final regulatory hurdle um, to pass, but it's taken a long time because of various changes to their system and databases. But in the other countries, I mean, various problems have emerged. In Scotland, for instance, we, we, we had difficulty linking health and crime. It's not linked, and so we approached the, the, the agency that does this, and, and, and basically no one was willing to take to make that decision is, is, is what we could really figure out. And so we sort of gave up after trying for a couple of years. And, um, and in Australia, what, what, what seems to be the case is that they had re-incarceration data rather than repeat offending data. And then getting the repeat offending data was too much of... It was, it was too administratively burdensome. It required a whole new set of ethics approvals and it was just seemed too, complica too complicated to do. The one country where we were able to, to do a, um, a validation study was the Netherlands, and it was an interesting experience, partly because they approached us, and I think there's a lesson there, is that um, you, know, you, you, can, you can approach people, you can even get funding to do validation projects, but sometimes you know, there has to be really a sort of need on, on, the, in the, in the, on the ground for something. And the Dutch approached us because they were actually redesigning their, um, how they did risk assessments in criminal justice. And they had read about OxRisk, um, some, some academics had told them, and, and they contacted us. And so we worked with them to, um, to try and validate the tool in the Netherlands. And, and, and Maria was involved in this project where we, they had data for the whole country, actually. So it was quite an interesting project. And, and, we, and they were quite interested in how it works in a different population, people on probation, so not even how the tool was designed. So we, we actually were able to recalibrate the model to reflect that particular population, change one of the variables, uh, give it an average score, and then we, we, we were able to validate it in the Netherlands. And that was um, a sort of part of um, an implementation pathway because 
Then they were able then to pitch it almost to the government or the Ministry of Justice to say that we think Oxrex should be embedded in their routine uh, practice. So everyone that's on probation and everyone that's assessed by probation should have it as part of a range of things that happens. It's not just uh, risk assessment, they have needs assessment. And so actually it is embedded and so it's now used routinely in the Netherlands. And for us it's great because it's an example of where you, you, know, you develop a risk prediction model and then it, you validate it and then you implement it you know, within a few years, which is sort of unusual, I think. The other um, uh, validation we did was in Tajikistan, and that was um, just sort of coincidentally a sort of... Uh, I met actually a couple of people working there who are US academics, but they had um, been working in prisons in Tajikistan, particularly around HIV prevention and treatment. And, and so we, we put together a project and, and we were able to actually... Um, complete a validation in Tajikistan. And the interesting thing about Tajikistan is the prison population is very different. I mean, they keep people in prison for much longer. They don't have very many people on short sentences. And, um, and so we were a little bit worried that it wouldn't validate very well because almost the prison population we thought might be very different. And actually it wasn't, so it validated quite well and it didn't shrink very much. So the area under the curve was 0.7. It's quite a large sample. We, we prospectively followed up about 1,000 people for a year. And, um, and like I say, it, it performed quite well. So interesting that, you know, as long as the effect of predictors um, doesn't change a lot, um, you know, the, the, the prevalence of them can change. So the prevalence of the predictors change because the population is very different, but the effect probably doesn't change very much. Um, and that's probably why it didn't shrink as m- more than we, we originally thought. We've done some other validations. So I mentioned the Dutch one of Oxmiv. That was, oh no, that's a different one. So that's um, no, not Oxrec, but Oxmiv. So the Oxmiv model we've, we've validated in Oxrec. We've just got a paper done in England. And that was quite a difficult project to do because how in England do you get hold of data across health and criminal justice? And, and actually what we did is we went to the police here in Thames Valley and they have a, um, what they call a flag for mental health and drug and alcohol problems, which we then looked at quite carefully and figured out what a threshold would be that was um, about right, based on the prevalence of those flags. And so we, we use that as a, as, a, as a measure for mental health, because that's one of the predictors in Oxrec, and, and, and then separate measures for drug and alcohol. And, and that particular um, validation also did quite well, didn't shrink very much. And we had to drop a couple of variables they couldn't collect. So I suppose you can, yeah. I mean, when we were speaking about it, um, Tom said, well, I think you can get away with dropping one variable, but maybe not two or three. <laughs> but it seems like um, if the variables aren't very, in, you know, they're, they're not very strong predictors, then you probably can get away with two or three. That was our experience. And we just did a large finish validation of Oxmiz which actually was larger than the original study, which is quite interesting as well. And again, I think it's the power of these Nordic registers that you can... Um, Oxmiz doesn't go across crime register, it's just within health, but you need to link it to mortality and, and sociodemographic information. And the other thing we're trying to do is look at feasibility, and, and this asks very different questions. It asks questions about, I mean, can you use it clinically? in your service 
And if you do, what, what do you think? You know, so we, so we, um, the way we do the studies is we, we ask people to give us an estimate of risk of 10 patients they know, and then we present to them the score, the risk score, and say, well, does that seem right? Or if not, why do you think there's a difference? Would you do anything differently in your clinical practice? And you get a sense of whether the, um, the tools, how, how they would work in practice, what you would link it to, because uh, the tool can only get you so far. You need to link it to something, an intervention or something, or a further assessment, more detailed assessment. So I think that's part of the pipeline of work, is a, a series of feasibility studies. And they're, they're, they're mixed methods. I mean, they're mostly qualitative. I mean, it's about presenting clinicians or clinical teams with information from risk models and seeing what they think, and then seeing if you can extract information from clinical records. So they don't, you know, they don't, they don't attract the best journals in the world. So it's quite, yeah, you have to sort of take a slightly different approach and just see it as part of a bigger picture. Uh, but it's been quite interesting and, and quite informative, and particularly the first one, the FOVOX, which is a tool for forensic psychiatry. I mean, that was quite good. And actually, when we did the feasibility work, people then started to use the calculator. I mean, so the clinical teams and sort of think, oh, okay, well, that, that's pretty good. I'm going to use it. And, and they sort of... Um, so but the, those are three feasibility studies of FOVOX, one in, in, in here in, in Oxford and Bucks. The BMC psychiatry one is in, in a hospital in China and Nordic General Psychiatry one is in Sweden. And there, I think they're all using FOVOX regularly now in their clinical practice. So if I was to stand a little bit back and think about the challenges, well, I think maybe there's sort of three levels, yeah, three things. Yeah, so there's developing models, which isn't really what I've been talking about, but just, to, just to, I think my, my impression is it takes ages. <laughs> Maria can tell you. <laughs> so to do it properly takes ages. I mean, you can do it, and you can do it quickly, but to do it really properly and to figure out, you know, um, exactly... You know, getting the protocol right, what should go into the model, and you know, getting all the uh, everything put in place, and, and looking at all the various variables univariately and then multivariably, that really takes a long time to do it properly. The validation, I think, is 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 problematic most of the time unless you have access to registers of some sort, because you just kind of have a scale. I mean, you you may have heard of the rule of thumb of 100 events, you know, to validate a model, and most outcomes, at least the ones I've been looking at, they're quite rare. So you, you, you struggle, actually, unless you, to collect the data. You know, we did in Tajikistan for a high base rate, which is reoffending in that population. But in most of the time, it, you know, it's, it's really not possible. So you sort of almost have to think, when you develop a tool, to think about predictors that you can validate in registers. You know, so think about things that are routinely collected, because otherwise you may end up developing a tool that you can never validate <laughs> externally. And then implementing tools requires collaborators, obviously. Well, I mean, everything requires collaborators, but this requires external collaborators, usually, and, uh, and people probably who, who are looking for uh, something to fill a gap, a need. And so, actually, my, my impression is that, you know, just telling somebody or an agency, look, we've got this tool and it, you know, it's really great, you know, it's not, it's not going to work. I mean, they have to sort of have a need and identify the need among themselves to, to do that. 
Um, and so, of course, you know, that's the bit in the, in the pyramid that's very few tools get implemented. Every, you, know, you can develop a lot, validate a few more, but implementing them is just the right at the top of the iceberg. When I think about predictors and outcomes, just to sort of talk you through a few examples, I think, I mean, one of the challenges with predictors is it has to deal with missing information. You know, what, something to think about is, you know, what, what, what level of missingness are you able to cope with and, you know, whether it's at random or not, it's important. But also when it comes to validation, it's a big problem because, like I said, I mean, we're able to cope, I think, in our models where the uh, missing information is for predictors that are not very strong, have strong effects. But in one of the validations we wanted to do, the missing variable, the missing predictor was, was the most powerful. It was the previous behavior. So whether it's violence or suicidal acts, it was one of the two. And we just thought we couldn't go ahead because, I mean, the most powerful predictor is missing. So there, there was one missing variable, <laughs> the most powerful one. But with, the, with Oxrec done in the Thames Valley, I think we had two or three missing, but they were all very, very, um, they weren't very powerful predictors. So actually the model worked fine, didn't shrink very much because they're not very powerful. Different definitions, and I think there, the key thing is to look at the prevalence and see, you know, whether you can find a, a prevalence compared to the original development sample, which is sort of similar. So if you've got, and we've had this a lot with mental health variables, where some people use some sort of global score, let's say out of five, and is it three or is it two or is it one, the cutoffs that you would use? And you would try and base it, in our view, on what corresponds best to the prevalence in the original sample, the development sample. Non-clinical predictors. Well, this is the difficulty about using data sets. So... A lot of data sets are um, within clinical environments. So you get, like in the US, you have these insurance data sets, but they're within healthcare, if you see what I'm saying. But if you're gathering information about, let's say, educational level or income or um, employment status, then you're not going to get that. So you have to be aware of that. And it does limit, I think, the power of some tools where those predictors could be quite important, actually. Yeah, previously I mentioned, and ethical issues are, are very important to consider because um, some of the predictors used for some of these tools are proxies, and they're problematic proxies, and you have to be careful. And there's, you know, ways of dealing with it. And, you know, do you just completely remove anything that might be a proxy, or do you try and adjust in some way for the possibility that it's acting as a proxy? So there's different ways of dealing with it, and... I think it's a different question. It's a different. There's a whole. It's a whole session on its own because it's it's such an important area. Like I say, prevalence in the original development samples worth considering about, and the direction of magnitude when you do univariate analysis or and pre-specifying it. The outcome. I mean, here's one example of. Uh, this is a review we did of um, repeat offending in one and two years. You can see the big range. Now, I mean, why is there a, such a big range? I don't think it's because repeat offending is different. <laughs> I think it's because how you count repeat offending is very different. And, and I think that just tells you that, you know, you're, the, how, you, how you capture the outcome is, is going to be quite important, particularly when you consider if you should recalibrate the model. So even within one country, you know, you've got here North Carolina um, and Oregon. 
and, and they're probably counting it differently. I mean, it's the USA. And then you have, you know, within Nordic countries, Finland, Norway, um, and they are counting it differently. So there's ways of counting this particular outcome. For instance, you don't include fines. So if you don't include fines, you're going to... Uh, or you may not include what, what, what they call someone who's re recalled. So someone can be... At the end of their prison sentence, they still have time to serve, but they can serve in the community, and then they can be recalled into prison if they break a rule, like not turn up to their appointment on time. Um, and some places count that as repeat offending, some places don't, and that will determine part of this variation. But it's just one example, and I mean, we came across this because, you know, it's one of our outcomes is repeat offending. And one of the, the first validation we did, we, we actually used the non-criminal outcome, um, which was any interpersonal violence captured in a, a very richly phenotyped cohort of people with schizophrenia. But it, you know, it meant you know, quite a lot of recalibration and thinking about what to do. It's not ideal, because it's a three-year outcome, which is different. In our paper, you know, we had a one-year outcome. So you have a three-year outcome, of a different out which is a different outcome. And, and so you need to think quite carefully there about how to, how to deal with that. And like I say, you know, there's different things. There's arrest, there's conviction, there's violent conviction, and re-imprisonment. And I think the problem we had with some of the U.S. data, the U.S. data we wanted to collect, is they only had information on re-imprisonment, which is very easy to collect, I suppose. If you particularly have a prison database, it's very easy to collect, rather than repeat offending, which doesn't lead to imprisonment, which a lot of it doesn't particularly if it's at the less serious end, what we call common assault. And um, the, like I say, um, it, I think it requires different cutoffs. So that's the other thing. Um, so we had pre-specified cutoffs, but they don't make sense if the outcomes are different. You know, and then you know, I think there should be a very clear plan about how you would consider and what you would do to recalibrate a tool. Um, and, and, and our experience is that you, you tend to have to recalibrate tools in new populations. And wider, wider issues, and so meta issues, which may or may not bother you very much, is, um, is when, you do a, when you develop a model, is who does the validation? I mean, it's a bit tricky, because really no one's got skin in the game. <laughs> so it ends up being the person who's developed the model, you know, which, is, which then is not independent, is it? I mean, because the person who has developed it, you know, is, is then involved. And that has some advantages because they can sort of ensure there's some quality, you know, quality control and it's done properly. But at the same time, then it's not truly an independent validation. And that might be too high a threshold to say it should be completely independent because why would someone want to validate, you know, a particular model unless they have a particular acute clinical need or practical need for a model? Why do you issue publications? So I mention that because I think, despite what people say, publishing validations is difficult. So people say it. So you see journals often, you know, saying, "Well, you know, we've been, you know, we, we, we look forward to validations of the of these models." But actually, we found that they're quite difficult to publish, and it's understandable. I mean, you know, they probably don't attract the same level of citations, and so journals may be a little bit less inclined towards them. You know. 
Uh, and also they're, they're not seen as novel because, you know, the tool is what's novel and it's sort of exciting and there's a new thing out there. And, you know, and, and, and you know, in the very least, it's giving you some information about risk factors that probably people didn't really think about. Um, so there's always something novel, even if it's not going to be implemented. There's something interesting or novel about it, but the validation is not. And so there is a challenge there. I mean, there are some journals which say specifically we're interested in, in validations. Um, and you'll see that we published in them. So they're the ones that we've gone to um, because they, they're more them. Our experience has been that they're more interested. Approvals is just a sort of wider issue with doing research. Is that is that you know there there are lots of regulatory hurdles and approval hurdles which you have to sort of factor in to your timelines. So if you want to do a, a validation study, let's say as part of a, a project, a master's or PhD project, you need to be ideally involved in something where the approvals are in place <laughs> because getting them up and running and sorting it all out is can be quite a long can take quite long and sometimes it can take longer than the time you have to do the research so there's lots of examples of that and you may have spoken to people I mean you probably know lots as well but um, and then just finally just to thank a few of the people involved so I mean early on um, some of the Swedish collaborators, Susan Mallet, who, who was here and now is actually UCL, not at Birmingham. Tom um, and more recently Maria have been central to these, um, uh, the research that we've done and some other people as well. Thank you very much.